Rationality is a label. Are you rational or are you not? And science has developed methods and tools for you to see what is real, objectively real, so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of your life, uh, your health, your longevity, and for your loved ones. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. If you're new to the podcast, you're in for a treat. Almost two years ago, I achieved one of my goals for the podcast, scoring an interview with the articulate and witty director of the Hayden Planetarium, one and only Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm still kind of amazed that he was willing to take the time from his busy schedule and chat with us. For my longtime loyal listeners that I've heard it all before. Yes, it's been almost two years and the time has flown. Thank you for helping me to meet another podcast goal of mine, 100,000 downloads, which we shot past earlier this month. I hope you're all able to sit back and relax and enjoy this awesome discussion with me. If you do find the rational view insightful, please share your discovery with your friends and spread the word. Think about becoming a subscriber on Podbean or your own podcast app and join the rational revolution. On this episode of The Rational View, we have a special treat. Grammy award-winning former Harvard wrestler and ballet dancer, popular science educator and astrophysicist, the articulate and witty director of the Hayden Planetarium, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is joining us today. Selected as one of the 100 most influential persons in the world by Time magazine in 2007, Dr. Tyson was awarded the Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication in 2017. Dr. Tyson, welcome to The Rational View. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was a a concise, flattering (laughs) intro. (laughs) Oh, I have to correct one thing about it. Uh, I was nominated for a Grammy, didn't actually get the Grammy. And you can get a Grammy for narrating... Uh, one of your own books or any book, you can get a, a Grammy for that. So it's just an audio product. And so, but I was delighted to have been nominated because I got to attend the Grammy Awards. <laughs> and that, that, is- that year, I, I live in New York and that year it happened to be based in New York City. Uh, okay. They held the Grammys in New York City that year at Madison Square Garden. So I, I was delighted to just participate. It's quite a diverse uh, portfolio of, of, you know, very broad <laughs> ranging things. <laughs> I didn't know until I looked you up on, on Wikipedia that you were also a ballet dancer and a wrestler. So that was, that was interesting. Yeah. So, so not that Wikipedia, I'd say the Wikipedia page is maybe 90% accurate. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a, a performing member of three different dance companies, one of which also did ballet, but the, uh, um, it did other genres as well. Uh, in that international Latin ballroom, uh, there was jazz dancing in there, sort of show tune type dancing. So, um, so the, the, the broader truth is that I 
I, I danced in 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 troops, but it's not the Bolshoi. Just make it clear. <laughs> these are no, these no. are college groups. Just to be clear. So I have to ask you about one of these things I found. I found on Wikipedia. It says in the year two thousand, you were named the sexiest astrophysicist alive by People Magazine. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. That was also just want to be clear. The um, I guess do they still do that each year? They had I, in I September. Yeah, yeah. They had the, the sexiest man alive issue, and that issue on the cover is the sexiest man alive, as judged by their panel. But what you might not know is the entire issue is filled with sexiest men alive, but in in subcategories. Okay, <laughs> so so I, I you know Brad Pitt that year was sexiest man alive. Okay, oh, okay, we okay. got that yeah, one sure. <laughs> clearly. Uh, and then uh, they had all the different categories. And I don't know how competitive my category is. When you consider other categories that they had, sexiest action star, sexiest model, sexiest professional athlete, sexiest news anchor. You know, there's I, a lot of very competitive categories there. And so I I don't, you know, so I, I don't know who I beat out. So I, I, it's not something to get big-headed about. I can just tell I you guess that. I, I must have missed the call for nominations. <laughs> so plus that was by the way the 2000 that was 40 pounds ago just if you want to reckon time <laughs> yeah yeah we all not only temporarily but but also by by weight right we're all fighting the bulge from from sitting at home i see uh you're pro promoting your newest book it's called welcome to the universe uh can you tell our listeners a little bit about it yeah yeah it's it's got a little backstory actually i mean i have a copy of it here of course <laughs> um it's actually a, it's a, a brief welcome to the universe a pocket-sized tour and i have two co-authors uh, michael strauss and richard gott uh they the three of us here, now here's the back oh by the way this is really like it really is brief the, the, you know, it, pocket size. It, it is a literal pocket size tour. It's not just the fantasy of that. And the backstory is the three of us uh, taught a class at Princeton, an introductory astrophysics class at Princeton. Okay. Uh, they're still at Princeton. I I'm, became later director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Uh, so the class, uh, you know, there was an intro astrophysics class that had never been taught. And we were going to teach it. And the, the truth is, not, none of us wanted to teach the whole class because we have like other stuff we wanted to. It was, it was not a price. So we said, why don't we each just teach part of it? And that way, that would free time in our schedule. So we split up the universe. And I taught sort of Earth, Sun, solar system, stars. Uh, Michael Strauss taught galaxies. And Rich Gott taught, he's an expert on Einstein relativity. Uh, he taught cosmology and time travel. And cool. so that course started out with like 45 people in it. And then in a couple of years, it had 300. And we had, to, we had to move venues like twice just to accommodate that. It became really popular. And so we were flattered by that. And we realized that the way we were teaching it, it, it had some innovations to it, some sort of, sort of fun uh fun ways to go in and out of what would otherwise be kind of 
kind of um, unfun information. And so we, so we decided to That's write fun. a book based on that course. And, and it was a, it, it was textbook sized, but mm-hmm. you could read it as though it wasn't a textbook because it was very conversational. It was very, come on in, let's check out the universe. And the, the best, the title that fit was welcome to the universe. Right. Okay. And that was a big fat book. We even created a, a problem solving companion book to go with it in case you really wanted to use it as a textbook, even though you could sit down and read it. And then that got, that was popular. And then the publisher, Princeton University Press said, why don't we make a a sort of cherry picked version of this? And so we said, yeah, yeah. So, so no, it's not just condensed because if you condense it, that means you're shrinking the full volume. What we did instead was say, no, let's leave that out. No, not that. There's a good one. Let's put that in. So not only was the textbook sort of handpicked for what was really cool in the universe, this is a handpicked version of that textbook. So this is singing with uh, some of the most interesting bits of information and insight and understanding that you could ever put under one cover. So we're all quite proud of it. It just came out. Okay, so this is very approachable um, for the for the general public, uh, kind of a low level introduction. Yeah, this- yeah. In, in fact, the original textbook had math in it, and this one, all that math has been removed. Uh, of course, okay. you, you can't have anything brief that has math in it. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the You'll book has to match. The, yeah, yeah, it has to match the title of it. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, when he wrote the ver- the very uh, a big seller, A Brief History of Time, was warned by his publisher that, because no, we knew who he was professionally, but the public really didn't know about him at the time, or, mm-hmm. or that he's in a wheelchair, or it's par- you know paralyzed, has this, this debilitating condition. And <clears throat> so we knew about him, but not that that's relevant. I just want to say he was not known at the time. So the publisher mm-hmm. said, uh, our research shows that for every equation you put in the book, the potential audience is cut in half. <laughs> wow. So one <laughs> equation is half. Two equations is one fourth. Three equations, one eighth. You know, you just do the one half to wow. the n okay. power. And okay. so I think there were there might have been two or three equations in it, and it was one of the biggest selling books of all time. Imagine and, and if you hadn't put them in. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be one on every person itself. Right. <laughs> That's cool. So, yeah, that's great. Um, I also see that you've started your own podcast, Star Talk. And it looks like you're addressing some important societal issues in this podcast. I, I looked at a couple episodes. If you want to give a quick shout out to my listeners, maybe we can give you guys a big boost. Okay. No, I'd be delighted. <laughs> uh, actually, the, uh, it started out as a radio show, a terrestrial radio show, terrestrial meaning uh, radio stations. And that was about 12, 13 years ago. And it was birthed. Again, this is kind of backstory. I don't know if anybody cares, but it was birthed with a grant from the National Science Foundation. Uh, We told the National Science Foundation, look, most science on the radio is like from uh, public stations, you know, where every three months they have to beg you for money. And I said, I think we can make science way more interesting than that on a level where sponsors would want to buy ad time. So to, to, turn it into a commercial entity like anything else is all right like like sitcoms like like anything 
all right? It's They have some magic fact about them that allows them to be self-sustained in the marketplace. And I thought science, I know people like science on a level higher than I think what is previously recognized. And so mm -hmm. they said, we'll go with you. And so they gave us a three-year grant because you have to be able to make the show even though no one's paying for it, all right? And then you, sh you then, then pe right, people right. see the show, they say, hey, let's get into that. So we got a three-year grant, but it, it took five years to, to operate in the black. And with a bridge grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, because we told them about it too, and they were excited. So after five years, uh, it became self-sustaining. It's been self-sustaining wow. ever since. And what we do, it, the, the secret sauce, if you will, is we combine the science with humor and pop culture. So this okay. is this is kind of a woven tapestry. So my co-host notes here. Is, okay, <laughs> but my co-host is always a professional stand-up comedian, and now not the kind that just only tells one-liners. That's a, one kind of comedian. Another kind of comedian is very observant and will find something humorous in what you say. Mm -hmm. So they became a force of levity in the okay. program. The yeah. science is a force of gravity, and the pop culture is the 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 per, people's access point to the program and uh, so for example we might have a uh, one of our guests might be a, a celebrity uh, or an actor who starred in a sci-fi movie right and that sci-fi movie involves space travel and what well, we'll we'll use the celebrity that, that's the pop culture side as an excuse to get their fan base to come listen to them because fan bases follow their their people around and they then get to learn about the actual science of what the actor was in so the actor you, you come okay. for the celebrity okay. and then you stay for the science that's, that's the sort of classic combo that we invoke and if the celebrity happens to be about something where i don't carry that expertise, we'll bring in another uh, academic expert. And so we always have an academic perspective on whatever is the pop culture dimension about which you are smiling because we have a professional comedian. When you combine all three of those, it becomes uh, quite potent, I think, especially as evidenced by the, the, the fan base that the show has accumulated over, over those years. So it went from there, then it was satellite radio, and now it's, it's a podcast. Um, and a YouTube show, and okay. uh, we, nice. sp we, we spent three years as a TV show on uh, National Geographic, uh, and oh. so that was fun. It was it was like a talk show. We had everything but the band. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nice. maybe we could have a, like a science band, but we were just just getting off the ground, and I, I couldn't picture how we would include the band because all the all the good talk show hosts have bands, right? And uh, so. But, but what happened since then was that Fox bought National Geographic and Disney bought both Fox and National Geographic. And so so all of this uh, product, especially the Cosmos series that I was uh, privileged to host, uh, which had aired on National Geographic and Fox, those you find all those on Disney Plus right now. Ah, okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So it, it's good to see uh, on your on your podcast, you've been actively advocating uh, for COVID-19 vaccines. Way to go. I, I've learned uh, on this show, it's difficult as a popularizer to take a stand on a polarizing issue. And I 
my goal that I set out for this podcast was to just do that on, on many issues, to try to discuss the science and evidence and take it where it leads. But I think I didn't really understand the implications of this. As you said, with your equation uh, in books thing, this is similar to equations with books. Every time you take a stand on a polarizing issue, um, you risk losing half your audience. <laughs> yeah. What's your experience so, uh, with that? So I learned very early, and I learned this primarily not so much through StarTalk, but through uh, my social media uh, platforms, that the uh, it is not useful to express an opinion. Because in social media, uh, people get angry if your opinion does not agree with theirs. And that's an extraordinary point of, in the evolution of people's capacity to communicate uh, extraordinary mm -hmm. in the sense that really do you want everyone in the world to have exactly your opinion on things well that's uh, that there are you know societies like that they're called dictatorships and everybody ha has to think and feel exactly the same way and there's hardly any plurality of views and conducts and beliefs and all the like so this can be very uh, it, it sounds like it, it could be unifying, but but be careful what you wish for. And so much of what makes the world interesting is because we're all different from one another. And so I've instead carefully not expressed opinions and only offer perspectives that may inform your opinion. Now, because people, uh, uh, with, with my level of social media following, typically people with that level are opinion or thought leaders, as we call them, or, or pundits or whatever. And so they're expecting that I'm handing them an opinion. So many cases, I've just simply put out information and people have interpreted it as an opinion. And... Mm -hmm. And so that's intrigued me because what it means is there are people with, with a lens through which they interpret the world and everything is tribal when seen through that lens. Yes. That, that there's a missing capacity to see information, factual information that conflicts with your belief system about the world. And I'll just give a quick example that happened just a few weeks ago. I had all of these tweets oh, since March 6th, 2020. I must have posted maybe 20 tweets, 30 tweets about COVID, all informational. And I said, wow, we still have a fourth of the country not getting, the United States, not getting vaccinated. All right, let me see. Let me try one more tactic. So I looked at how many people were dying every day. At the time, it was 1,000. Right now, it's wow. even higher than that. Dying every day from, excuse me, unvaccinated people dying every day from COVID, okay? okay. It, was, it was rising to 1,000. And 98% of anyone in the hospital sick from COVID or dying from COVID were unvaccinated. So all these numbers conspire here. And so I said, then I checked at the, the demographic, uh, uh, where the demographics fall on this, and out I, out I said, so about a thousand people are dying every day from COVID, which means every 10 days, more than 8, 
thousand unvaccinated Republican voters are dying, which is five times the rate of Democrats. So hmm. I thought to myself, the Republicans would get together and say, we need voters. Okay, We, we don't want to kill off all our voters because we want to win <laughs> Congress in the next uh, midterm election. All right. Because some, you know, that adds up and particularly in districts and regions and counties, this can make mm -hmm. a difference. So, mm -hmm. so I thought that's how it would be received. As an educator, I put a lot of thought into what the receptors are to mm -hmm. the information might be in the mind of to the information that I'm putting out there, but that's not, fights broke out. It was like, I, you know, I follow you for science, not because, you know, now you're getting political. I said, I'm not getting political. These are the data. All right. It's like, and, and people said, uh, uh, how can I b believe what you're saying? I don't, I don't believe it. Those numbers must be made up. And there was a, there was a denial mm -hmm. of this blunt truth that stared them right in the face. Now, of course the numbers are accurate and I put way more thought into what I post than typically people put in to how they react. Right? I'm just saying. Sure, yeah, <laughs> I put yeah. way more thought into it. But um, so, and people re reported that tweet as offensive. And if you report a tweet as offensive to Twitter, Twitter has to then put it in front of a panel to analyze it. And then they come back to you and notify you whether they had to take down the tweet or not. And I got this letter to say, it's been reported, we've evaluated, and no, we've decided it is not does not contain offensive material. So I'm saying, I'm glad that the truth is not offensive of all yeah, the things yeah. that are on social media. This one has got to be reviewed by you. That's kind of weird to me. So yes, um, this thing looked like an opinion because it got into the social cultural divide and put information there. But in fact, it was not. And not to talk this whole time, but let me give you one more example. No, that's good. Uh, after one of the horrific school shootings, um, I noted, and I, I just posted it, uh, I said, at Walmart, the world's largest gun seller, you can buy an AR-15 rifle Yet company policy bans the sale of pop music with curse words. That's all I posted. <laughs> That's all it was. Okay. That does not contain an opinion. It's a it's a contrast of facts mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. you to just do with what you want. Maybe you didn't know that. You probably didn't know that. Right. And people divided over it. Again, there's this interpretive lens that so many people carry. Um, as, you, as you know, the, in our First Amendment, we, there's the protection of free speech. And the Second Amendment, interpreted by many, is the right to carry guns. And so the, the audience split. I, I would say 20% said, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That, that was my expectation. Then the rest mm -hmm. split down the middle between um, uh, it's, a, it's a private company. They can, they can choose to not sell bad words. And figure that, that would be bad for children. That's, that's their prerogative. And the other half said uh, Second Amendment protects the gun ownership. They could, and people, they were thinking I was arguing one or the other of those two views. Yet mm -hmm. I was arguing neither. 
so that so that the world artificially divided because this is their I'm guessing this is the urge, which is just what you're talking about uh, in there. So yeah, if and if you hold a point of view, what'll happen is you lose the people who don't agree with the point of view, and then you're only speaking to the converted by the end. So I try hard to um oh here's what I do. I give if then statements. Maybe you could do this. Okay. So okay. another one of my COVID tweets was for some states to have mask mandates while other states do not is like designating a peeing section of the swimming pool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's all it is. It's an if then statement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it an opinion? Uh, It's just facts. Really? Okay. You can't, if you want to contain a virus, you can't have adjacent areas have different rules about it. So, um, so yes, that's a COVID tweet. Uh, yeah, that, well, that's, that's the point. Those two are ways to highlight um, insights that maybe you don't otherwise carry in your tribalistic views. Interesting, interesting. What, you mentioned the fact that um, Twitter... Um, some some shady group in Twitter gets to review uh, all these quotes and, and decide whether or not they're they're allowable or not. And like the CRTC, you'll only review it if if someone complains about it. How, how do you feel right. about that? Is it is it effective? Is it you know is it hindering free speech? Is it is it helping the conversation? I, I'm I'm kind of split about these things. I don't know. What I do know is, given all the crap that's online my tweet is that tweet was going to be reviewed for being offensive that's just that was a little disturbing to me yeah that it's it's facts can be viewed by some people as offensive and then twitter reviews them if that's the case what tell me about the stuff that's actually getting through that is in fact (laughs) that you know what and who decides? I, so I'm a little worried, you know, for the platform in that in that sense. It's just a little worrisome. Mm-hmm. I like I like your the way you uh, choose to provide perspective. I, I think you can uh, bring in opinion by on what you choose to highlight without explicitly bringing in opinion. I think. Yeah. So I guess, uh, in all fairness, the tweets that I post only because there's a view that comes from a place. There is a place where these views come from. And, and this is what enables the, the construction of the tweet uh, in the first place. I was early out of the box on COVID, March 6th. You know, uh, institutions are, are just at the brink of shutting down and meetings are getting canceled. And I said, mm-hmm. COVID is like an invasion, like an alien invasion that attacks only humans and it doesn't care about your religion, your politics, your ideology, your thing. Uh, it is an enemy of the species. And we need to have a coordinated effort to combat it that is based on science and rational thinking and not based on science and not on magical thinking. Right, right. Yeah, That's indeed. So is that an opinion? I mean, I guess it could have said. No, we don't need to fight it. I, I could have said a lot of different things, but I'm trying to protect the species. And, mm-hmm. of course, no one 
not no one, but many people didn't heed this kind of advice. And I, of course, I was the least of the people giving that advice, the health professionals and the CDC and all, all of this. I just felt responsible because of the size of my following. And I might be the only scientist that many people follow in their social media platforms. So sure. I, felt, I felt some duty to put that kind of information on it. But at no time do I say, get vaccinated. You should be vaccinated. I've never said that. I just give the consequences of not being vaccinated. I see. Oh, that's that's very rational. I, I I approve. I, you know, when I did this podcast, oh, that's you I have was, a rational podcast. That's why you approve. Trying to, <laughs> I try to, I try to get rationality into what, what I'm doing. I, I did an intro to science. I did some episodes on climate change and evolution and vaccines and GMOs, uh, and then I did one on. Uh, how glyphosate doesn't appear to be a human carcinogen and and maybe Monsanto is not the devil incarnate. And I, I basically lost half my audience and it's like, um, Oh, I, I hear you yeah. provided some information on GMOs. So my advice is maybe don't look too deeply into glyphosate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I narrated a, a, a documentary about uh, GMOs. And I didn't create the documentary, but I sort of approved its content and made some suggestions. But it was primarily the work of a documentarian named Scott Kennedy, who is, um, you know, he, he, he's got, you know, he's a left leaning in his worldview and his outlook. Uh, mm -hmm. But he noticed that there are certain postures that people on the left take that is not founded in either rational thinking or science. And it's very, it, it serves a, a, a worldview that is not itself entirely based in science. And that's a curious fact because the left commonly criticize, criticizes the right for being anti-science, primarily citing and justifiably the denial of human caused climate change. And that of course poses existential threats. So that's, that's climate, that's science denial on a, on a very extreme level that has global consequences. A lot of the science denial that existed on the left is affected just the individual. If you, if you choose not to buy GMO, okay, okay. But if you do things that then have global consequences, and by the way, the first anti-vaxxers were people on the left. It only worked its way into them. And their reasons were because they were anti-pharma and anti sort of some mm -hmm. mainstream science related to it. We're, and then the right became anti-vax out of freedom. And this is America. And this is, and so there they meet on the other side of the fence. And now they, they account for nearly a fourth of all uh, of the country that, that's not vaccinated. So, so anyhow, so the, so the GMO, there's an interesting fact about glyphosate. If you look at, you know about LD50? It's a, yes. it's a ranking of lethality of a, a substance that you might ingest. And you can create this scale for practically anything um, that's ingestible. It wouldn't even that's have to be food. Lowest dose right? to kill half of a test population. Correct. So uh, it's a lowest dose per kilogram of body weight, where if you, <clears throat> no, not lowest dose, lethal dose. So if, if, so the way that works is you, they, they yeah. do this with mice, of course, which have sufficiently similar DNA to humans, although humans don't want to admit that, um, that there's, there's so much correspondence to 
what happens to them relative to us. They get cancer, they get obesity, they get addicted. There's a lot of similar things. So they do this on mice and you, you, you give them an, an ever increasing dose until you see that half of them die. And so that's an LD50. So yeah. the, the lethal dose for uh, glyphosate is higher than the lethal dose for salt. Yes. So yes. in other words, a, a, a higher lethal dose means it's less lethal to you. You can take less more of toxic. it before you die, right? And so I, I, when I communicate with the public, I just try to put this kind of information out there and then let them decide on their own. And it's, mm -hmm. it's hard because people get very, you know, the heels get dug in. They do. Because they, they, they believe something to be true. And then they cherry pick the so you know this you, you if the, with a podcast named Rationality this is the <laughs> center point to everything you talk about you you Indeed. believe you have a worldview and then you cherry pick information to support that worldview and then you're content in how you go about life for having yeah. done so I agree with your observation as well that there's you know anti-science on both sides of the political spectrum. This is not a monopoly of the right. This, there's anti-science just as strongly on the left and, you know, at the extremes, especially where worldview seems to trump um, facts and evidence. Uh, and, yeah, and I would say it slightly differently, only just to be precise, because if you tell someone that they are something and they don't believe they're that, then you're not reaching them at all. So li no liberal will say, I am anti-science. What is true is for them to hold the beliefs they do, they must reject some or all mainstream science on that subject. They have to reject mm -hmm. it. And when I've had this conversation, often the reply was, um, well, I reject it because farmers is only into big money and, and, it's, and <laughs> that's why I reject it. So they, they, they sort of justify it on the claim that they've done the research mm -hmm. and they're saying that the science that says they're wrong is what's wrong, thereby sustaining, being able to sustain their view. And in the limit, you get conspiracy theories. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I. You know, I try to provide evidence-based assessments and show listeners how to apply uh, the tools of skepticism and follow the scientific method. And I think that's important is to get critical thinking and question, always question your beliefs, always challenge your assumptions. And I've, I've spent a lot of time on issues surrounding greenhouse gases and anthropogenic climate change and working to try to help, you know, communicate with, you know, enter the other echo chamber and listen and address people's concerns uh, without caricaturing and calling names. And, and that's how you have to get across this divide that's immobilizing society on these issues, I think. To, to the extent that people tune out because they think you're preaching to them, then the value of what you're doing is you're equipping your audience who are following you and who are listening and, and, and learning you're equipping them with tools for their next Thanksgiving dinner where, <laughs> yes. where the uncle comes over. <laughs> you know, there's always, you know, 
any more than five people at a gathering, there's going to be somebody who has views that are very different from the others that is not based uh, on science or, or rational thought. Uh, I, I would say also that you can't always use reason to, how does that saying go? You can't use reason to argue someone out of a point that they didn't use reason to get into. Uh, yeah, it's a nice yeah. adage. I, I don't think it's entirely true, but it's something to keep in mind when you're having such a conversation. And yeah, I think many of our decisions are not rational and, and rationality is, is how we rationalize our emotional attachment to an issue. Yeah. And I would say uh, just to, just to stir the pot here, uh, I would say most of what is um, remarkable and beautiful in the world created by humans did not derive from any kind of rational conduct or behavior. Like uh, the greatest of our art, you're not saying, well, that was done rationally. You know, it's, that's, not, that's not the state of mind or the emotion. There's nothing rational about Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night, right? That, that's not what the sky looked like at all to anybody <laughs> at the time, okay, with the swirly things. And the, and, but that's surely what the sky felt like to him. And so, uh, so I think when you discuss rationality, there are many people who thrive in their lives in, in ways that come nowhere near rationality. And these are very important to them, but it would include religion. It would include, like I said, art. It would include any emotions they feel towards someone or against someone. These are very real to people. So um, I, rather than, because rationality is a label. Are you rational or are you not? Whereas I'd rather think of it just tactically, if for no other reason, to think of it as um, not branded as rationality, but uh, just say how close to reality you want to be. And science has developed methods and tools for you to see what is real, objectively real, so that you can make decisions that are in the best interest of your life, uh, your health, your longevity, and for your loved ones. Yeah. So, so that's just, a, I just put that out there. Yeah, I mean, we have to, obviously separate the the realms in which we need rationality and my goal is to get rationality in public policy um you know rather than art or, or religion um which have their own spheres of influence and are very important to to the human condition um public policy is kind of my focus for the rational part and that mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the struggle mm -hmm. to separate you know the separation of church and state and all of that um obviously is at the root of this And I think, uh, you know, getting back to climate change, uh, I think some of the extreme weather events that we're seeing now are maybe helping uh, to break society out of immobilization. And maybe we're turning a corner on denialism. I'm not sure. There seems to be a groundswell of recognition of the issue. And maybe we're, we're past the knee on climate change denial. And now we need well, to turn it was, our it was attention to solutions. I, think, I agree with you, but I think it was hard-earned. And it took way longer than it should have because uh, yeah. I, I tracked it. It started out, no, there is no climate change. And then it became, okay, there is climate change, but humans aren't causing it. And then there's more and more people saying, okay, humans are causing it, but I don't think we can do anything about it. Or I don't think we should do anything about it. So that's, 
that's progress in a sort of perverse sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, it starts, by the way, the military and insurance companies are all in on climate change because um, climate change around the world destabilizes geopolitics when you have climate change refugees and uh, the supply chain to support people whose entire villages or cities are, are knocked out um, of of what, you know, by, by whatever uh, massive weather incident is responsible. So, so yes, I mean, the more people it hits, and it wasn't just the, the, the hurricanes, of course, you have, especially the wildfires, the droughts, the floods, the, um, of course, there have always been wildfires and droughts and floods. We're now talking about the frequency of these things. We're talking about the intensity of these things. And uh, you have a once in a century flood happening twice in a decade, you know, so that's, that ought to wake you up to yeah, what's yeah, going exactly. on. I think maybe it is. Now we have to kind of turn our attention to how are we going to solve this pickle that we're in? Um, how do you, how are we doing? How do you think the world's doing on that? I mean, you want me to give it a grade? <laughs> I'm reminded, I saw a comic, this was really funny. Uh, it came out maybe five years ago. Uh, there's a climate change, a science, climate scientist giving a talk, and there's someone in the audience who says, uh, you know, and, and the climate change scientist is talking about sort of improving the world, reducing the carbon footprint, and it also reduces pollution and other things, and all the ways you can just make a greener world. And someone raises their hand, gets up and says, uh, what if you're wrong? What if we make, <laughs> what if there is no climate change and we make a better world for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a cute, cute point. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm on side with that. So, you know, I focus a lot on, on solutions with, with my listeners and, and looking at energy systems, especially in decarbonizing the grid and, and pushing towards, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels, replacing it. Um, on that, on that note, I really enjoyed watching your reboot of Cosmos, uh, Carl Sagan's original grand work until the, the episode on future energy systems where you the show failed to mention the one energy source that we know is capable of decarbonizing oh, nuclear. the economy. Nuclear. <laughs> France did about it in a decade, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was my only criticism of an amazing series. What, yeah. what was so, going on there? Um, so a couple of things. First, the uh, most of what you see uh, in, well, let me, let me say it differently. Uh, the secret sauce of all three cosmoses 1980, 2014, 2020. I had the privilege of hosting the second two of those three. Uh, the secret sauce there is Andrian, who is uh, the widow of Carl Sagan. And I, I think she was mostly in his shadow when he was sort of at his prime. They had a couple of books published together, but mm -hmm. people were only thinking of Carl Sagan and his, and without wondering what could be her influence on his writings or his outlooks. Um, it's Andrian that her influence on the scripting, on the scenes, on the storytelling 
is what allows you to watch a cosmos and never at any point think to yourself, I'm watching a documentary. No, you're not thinking that. There's, there, I don't think there's a word for what cosmos is. It's informative, it's entertaining, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's even spiritual in a, in a sort of secular sense. It's um, uplifting. It has all these factors that you don't normally find in a sort of documentary. Part of it <clears throat> is, uh, yeah, we probably could have talked about nukes. Uh, I think the, 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 to do so, we'd have to then talk about, um, because you can't just say something unless you do it properly. And we'd have to say, um, contrast the dangers of nukes with the dangers of, uh, extracting coal from coal mines, for example, uh, compare the dead from both of those. And there's no contest, of course, the coal mines win the dead contest. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of coal miners have died. Um, but of course, the, the, the power plant, the nuclear power plant um, disasters get much bigger headlines, okay, yes. because people fear nukes. And nukes are, that is one of the forbidden n-words of our time one of the two n-words you're not supposed to use so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. rather than introduce it then talk about the fact that they're safer today than they were in chernobyl and they're safe that it was too much so we said let's just leapfrog even that and then go into a distant future where you don't even need nukes because more sunlight hits earth's surface than all of civilization uses or will ever use and so um, it, it, it was it was an it was an excuse to think very forward about this challenge, rather than retread something uh, that has improved over the decades, but would still have risk. And most recently, of course, is the Fukushima um, disaster. That uh, I don't know. I, I I didn't follow up on the on the health consequences of the Fukushima uh, power plant. Yeah, uh, I've looked disaster, into it. But that came about, of course, because of a tsunami after an earthquake in Japan, and Japan is in the ring of fire. Uh, that entire arc of Earth's surface, where you have continental plates moving, we have a lot of action, uh, volcanic and uh, action as well as earthquake action. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we just didn't go there. It was easier to yeah. not go there. And on, on, the, on the Fukushima one, I've I've spoken with uh, senior scientists on the uh, UN panel on. Um, uh, ionizing radiation, uh, or effects of atomic radiation, un unskeered, I think it's called. Um, Jerry Thomas uh, from the UK, especially, uh, was who runs the Chernobyl Tissue Bank and does childhood leukemia and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I've talked with them and they've said basically that the, the amount of radiation that came out of Fukushima is unlikely to harm anyone. Um, so... I think the the risks of radiation are overblown, as you say. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of like the high profile um, jet crashes that happen once a decade um, that force people right. to go drive their cars, right? Right, right. But uh, there's another side of this which complicates the calculation or the in interpreting what's happening. So uh, a coal mine collapse kills just the coal miners. It doesn't kill their families or anyone else in the town. So it's a very local thing. A plane crash can kill people on the ground. Most of the time it doesn't, but it can. And the and of course, you're not 
in control of that. Whereas in a car, you believe you're in control of all parameters. So that if there's an accident, you think I can, I'm a good driver, I can swerve out of it. In an airplane, airplane's going down, there's nothing you can do. You're, ju you're just sitting there waiting the moments for you to die. The, uh, with a nuclear power plant exposure, um, since we're still speak of the contraction of cancer probabilistically, right? There's the number of people who would get cancer without it in a zone. And then all you can do is say, what is the increase in that risk that the nuclear disaster will bring? Is it 15% increase on the already low risk? Well, people hear the 15%, they say, oh my gosh, there's a 15% when it was previously zero. No, it's 15% on this other low risk that you would otherwise get it. So here's what happens. So it spreads out. And as it spreads out, the intensity of the ionizing radiation or the particles that are responsible for the ionizing radiation, that intensity drops, okay? If it stays sort of two-dimensional, it drops as the square of the distance from the, from the, the release point. And mm -hmm. so, but the area grows as the square of the distance to the release point. So the total number of people exposed goes up as the as the intensity of the radiation drops and so what you end up getting is these two effects kind of cancel each other and so you you end up with the same number of people who might want to claim that their cancer was attributable to the uh, uh to the the leakage and so that that because it spreads out that you have this weird uh, geometric arithmetic it's not weird. It's just simple, straightforward geometric arithmetic about the. And then, if you get cancer, how are you going to prove it was a Fukushima cancer and not a cancer you would have otherwise gotten on your own? Mm -hmm. Because there will be people in these concentric rings that will get cancer with or without Fukushima, and that makes it very hard, and it makes it a public policy nightmare to disentangle those two phenomena. Yeah, yeah. This is this is been the problem is that people have the perception that they're getting cancer from the radiation when in actual fact the environmental uh, challenges to your DNA are orders of magnitude beyond anything from the radiation, the background radiation yeah, so that's levels how, that we that's have how you'd every have day. To, right? Exactly. That's, so that's how you'd have to give that information because, you know, a person who is aff afflicted by it is not responsive to the statistics that they shouldn't have been, right? So... So what you do, you, you can just give the general background radiation flux and say this is one one hundredth of that or one one thousandth of that. And uh, to the extent that that brings peace of mind, I don't know. Because like I said, as we know, the nuke is a, is a bad word. They even we took it out of the... <laughs> right. Because bananas they, they have high potassium, of, which is partially radioactive. And so you can say, okay, you've been exposed to half a banana of radiation. That is not what caused yeah, your cancer. Yeah, so that, that'd be a way to do that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way you'd have to speak of this. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I know that the uh, there's a big... Well, just to um, be clear, um, it's an isotope of potassium is radioactive so not just straight out potassium right. so for any 
volume of potassium, there'll be some that are radioactive. And that's where you get that. A fraction of the naturally occurring potassium is, is Correct. radioactive. Yeah. yeah. The public policy aspect of this is, is quite um, intensely battled these days, in Europe especially. You look at the, um, the European uh, EU is, is putting together a, a package of um, uh, a taxonomy, for a green taxonomy to, to help transition away from fossil fuels and the fight to have nuclear excluded. Uh, being led by the Green Parties in Germany uh, is, is, is quite something. And as Germany is trying to shut down all of their nuclear plants, the, the European Joint Research Committee recently concluded that nuclear is as safe in terms of the, the potential dangers to society as any other power source we have. Yeah, it's come a long way. Right, right. When it comes to solution discussions, it appears to be mostly ignored. It feels like it's kind of a mass science denial. Well, so then what has to happen there is uh, we start running out of fossil fuels and people didn't act on sort of green energy fast enough. So the price of oil goes up because it's becoming more and more scarce. And whatever else we've been doing is not making up for that gap and then people will i think embrace nukes because they don't want to spend half their paycheck to drive their car uh, their yes. now electric car which still has to use coal because the electric companies can't keep up with green fuel so it's so it's a race i think and um people have a way of changing heart when the economics demands it of them. <laughs> yes. And so that's a possible scenario, unless there's such a pace of building wind farms and, and hydro and, and, and tidal power and all these other ways that people have come up with. If that catches up, it catches up and then we don't need nukes. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's the massive scale of, of the problem as the IPCC is, is, place that is is daunting we i think we need to be expanding in all of our green options if you look at the ipcc report recently they said to get to 80 percent decarbonization we need to something like double or triple our our clean electrical outputs from from current standards yeah what complicates that is of course the ocean uptakes co2 so that as we drop our CO2 levels, let's assume we even succeed at that, the, the ocean, the, the way the chemistry works, it has the, the, there's a chemical equilibrium for every chemical species that's in the air with what's dissolved in the ocean. And so if you remove the CO2 from the air, CO2 then gets outgassed, if you will, from the ocean, returning it back into the air. So, so we have to not only remove the CO2 from the air, we have to remove the CO2 from the ocean as it gets returned to the air to make sure that the, uh, the level of the air can stay low. So, yeah. so that's another sort of challenge in the, in the full, fully recognized uh, climactic cycling that, that's going on. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's stop digging before we <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> and by the way, I would say, let me just throw something out there. Um, there's no reason in principle to demonize energy consumption because there's the sun has unlimited energy. So, um, so does the earth for that matter. Iceland used to burn coal and now in recent decades, they converted essentially completely to, to geothermal. 
because Iceland is sitting on a volcano, basically. So there's so they heat their roads so they don't have to plow it in the winter. Okay. That's <laughs> when you have extra energy, that's the kind of stuff you get to do with it. And so uh so imagine a future. I don't know how close we are to this if or ever, but imagine a future where we have a, a way to systematically remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. Okay, just remove it. Yep. And CO2 scrubbers. Uh there's some place on earth where wind runs steady and you, and the air goes through the co2 drops out and it gets buried if you can do that then we control this it's a geoengineering project where you control the co2 you can tune it to whatever level you want and it won't matter how much uh how much uh, uh buried fossil fuels you burn it just simply won't matter I think right and now this is a, the earth this is, is unthinkable to people. And so the only restriction there is one day we're going to run out of the fossil fuels. Okay, and so yeah, you, you still want to be ready for that day, regardless, even if it had nothing to do with climate change. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think right now the state of the art for for removing CO two from the air takes about ninety percent of the energy uh, that you would have got from burning the fossil fuel uh, at the start. So it's it's no, so what you do not, is you get that energy from the sun. <laughs> Use sunlight to remove the CO two from the air. Well, that's how you do that. It takes energy to get sunlight. Energy from no, it takes energy to build solar panels, and then that that has a carbon no, but you only build it once, right? Yes, um, you build it once, years. and then you use it for its usable life. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a continuously draining source of energy for you. Yeah, I, it takes energy to build like, an electric car. I feel like renewable is a is a false title because every power source requires investment in the material to harvest and every harvesting uh infrastructure has a lifetime so you know renewable yes the source is renewable but effectively the the amount of nuclear material in the world is also renewable on that basis and that you, you have enough to last for billions of years so i find that that biases the the uh, discussion towards kind of a yes, it's natural. It's it's kind of the appeal to nature fallacy that yes, it's natural, but it's not. You know that doesn't necessarily make it better. Yes, yeah, so nukes are basically renewable in the, for the reasons you stated. You know, there's an unlimited, particularly fusion, nuclear fusion. If we get to yeah. fusion reactors, uh, there's an unlimited amount of hydrogen around. So uh, yes, the um, I mean, the universe is ninety something percent hydrogen. <laughs> so this is not a this is not a uh, this is not We're a not challenge here. We're not running out. Uh, the uh, the point here is uh, whatever it is you're making that consumes environmental materials, and that has to be made with the invocation of energy. In principle, all ultimate sources of energy can be traceable to the sun in that supply chain. And so I, it just ha doesn't happen to be that way right now, right? You drive your electric car that was made out of materials that required oil, the burning of oil to create. Mm -hmm. So, okay, but I only burn that oil once for my car. Yes, the car has a life expectancy. And so it's a start, but you are right. The full renewability and the full green greenitude, or I need a word there, the full greenness <laughs> of what of the action is not realized at the level most people think it is when they're doing it. That's certainly the mm -hmm. case. But it's mm -hmm. a start and people have to start somewhere.
and yeah, we need to to attack this on all levels because it's a huge problem and mm-hmm. it's big. So, moving on, want to get your opinion? Uh, are you excited about the James Webb Space Telescope? Well, I don't. I don't. My opinions. I don't. I have opinions on a lot of things, but I don't share them because I don't care if anybody else has them. They're just my, they're my opinions. So, <laughs> you want my opinion on something? I guess I'll give it to you, but not with the intent of convincing <laughs> you of anything. Okay, so go go ahead. No, no, I just want to know: Are you excited about the James Webb Space Telescope launch coming up finally? Yeah, in December the launch of date has year. been finally. The launch date has been established. I don't know when people will be uh, tending to this uh, uh, post posting, but as of this posting, it's just a few weeks away, and I'm, I'm delighted. It was many years in the making. And, you know, the cost overruns and things, but it's a unique scientific instrument. It's being heavily tested because it's, you only get one shot at this. Unlike the Hubble, we're not going to get to go back to this and, and repair an error. So, uh, so we're all looking very uh, closely. Uh, we want to make sure it goes well and we expect groundbreaking science to come of it, which was the whole point of its design. It's going, to, it's going to see the formation of galaxies in the early universe, as well yes. as dig deep into gas clouds that are nearby and get unprecedented res- resolution in the formation of planets and star systems in general. So wow. we all very much look forward to it. Yeah, I, I was actually part of the, the team that delivered Canada's biggest astronomy space astronomy instrument ever, the, the Fine Guidance Sensor and uh, oh, NEARS nice. instrument uh, nice, to NASA. Nice. We delivered that back in 2012. Uh, just when Congress was voting on whether to cancel the whole project. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me say something about Canada. It was interesting. Practically every image we ever saw of the space shuttle deploying a satellite, there was the Canada arm. <laughs> yes. And what's yes. weird was, no matter its orientation, it always just said Canada arm in full view. <laughs> it wasn't ever upside down or anything. It was so I don't know that what was the y'all did. Engineering bit. <laughs> <laughs> was it gimbaled in a way so that it always was a Canada arm? It was his own advertisement every single time. So that was quite impressive. The 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 JWST project is a huge project. I was first involved in concept studies on what was called the Next Generation Space Telescope back in yeah. the late mm-hmm. 90s. NGST, yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it's, you know, a 20-year journey for people, you know, entire careers uh, developing instrumentation for this and testing it. And um, people in, in the public see billions of dollars spent on space astronomy and say, why aren't you spending this money on solving world hunger? You know, you, you should be doing this. Um, yeah, uh, the money isn't just tossed into space, right? Th- this money does go <laughs> to salaries of, <laughs> of highly qualified people here on the ground that pay taxes. Yeah. What, yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how do you uh, respond to people who, who suggest that spending money, big money on astronomy is wasted? Well, so when people cite hunger and poverty and other challenges of the world, um, you know, my, my, my raw answer to them this, is, this doesn't gain ad- adherence or anything, but it's true that all the problems they listed were around before anyone ever put anything into space. And so to now have these problems and then want to blame the existence of a space program 
on those problems that predated the space program, I think is doesn't is not honest about the run of the history of people's attempts to solve problems. That's my first. Second, you can ask, well, how much is NASA spending on space? If you ask those very same people, they will give you the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. You say, well, here's the federal budget. Here's a dollar. How much of that dollar goes to NASA? And they'll say, oh, 10%, 20%. And then you tell, that's what the, their answer will be. I'm telling you right now, that is what their answer will be. Wow. If they ever had those thoughts. I wish. And then I say, no, <laughs> it is uh, less than one half of one penny on a tax dollar. And if you take a, a physical paper dollar and then cut off one half of 1% of it, you would not even notice that the dollar changed because it doesn't even get into the ink. It's still on the border of what it is. So, so to cite space as the reason why you're not otherwise solving these problems is disingenuous. Third, I analogize it to being in a cave. So we're all in a cave 30,000 years ago. And then some group of us say to the elders, and back then the elders would have been like 32. <laughs> Cave elders. Because so, everybody's dead by 40. So old. Um, yeah, yeah. So we'd say, oh, we want to go outside the cave because we see like mountains and valleys and hills and trees and plants. And so we want to see what's out there. And the cave elders say, no, uh, we have cave problems we have to solve first. Solve the cave problems first before you leave the cave. Well, that's exactly what you sound like to me. You're yes. realizing how vast the universe is and how tiny Earth is relative to it. You're going to say, don't explore the universe because we have cave problems on Earth. We have to solve first. Um, that is um, that is an extreme expression of short-sightedness. And no, I can't tell you in what way our problems will be addressed or solved by discoveries made in space. No, I, can't, I, I don't know. That's the whole point of research. Okay. The, the D part of R and D is, yeah, I got something. Let's turn it into something practical. But the R part of it is, I, I don't know. In the 1920s, when very brilliant people were giving their attention to the discovery of quantum physics, uh, might you have said, we can't do that going into the 1930s. We have the depression. We need you to solve these depression problems. And it was, no, I want to think about the atom. No, we don't have that luxury to do so. And quantum physics is now the foundation of all modern information technology because there is no creation, storage, and retrieval of information without exploiting the tenets of quantum physics. Yeah, that would take several decades, um, 30, 40, 50 years to fully exploit. But that was a frontier of discovery that no one had any idea how it would ever apply to our civilization. And now we couldn't have civilization without it. So, yeah. no, that in that case wasn't space. We didn't know how to get to space yet, but it represented a frontier that any socially conscious person might have questioned in the day because it involved very smart people and a lot of money. That's a great perspective. So, yeah. no, that takes longer than an elevator pitch to communicate, <laughs> but it, it's all true. And I want to believe that people will take it, reflect on it, and come back with a different answer. Indeed. So it looks like we're getting towards the end of our time slot here, and I'm really excited to have had you on The Rational View. 
let me tell you, one of the goals I set myself when I started this podcast was to get Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast. Uh, because I love the way you explain things and, and the interest, uh, how well you, you express these things to the public. Um, so thank you so much for that. Well, I'm happy to serve. And it's um, uh, often just uh, an, an aside here. Uh, I get requests to be on podcasts all the time. And the, the urge of many podcasters is to try to give me the list of famous people who have been on their podcast. And what they don't know is that I really don't give a shit. Okay, I don't care who else you've had on. Is your heart in the right place? Is your mission statement and you're trying to make a better world? Uh, then I'm there for you. So you. there are a lot of podcasts in the world. I think it's passing a million right now, regularly produced podcasts. So no, I don't have time to be on all of them. But if there's one called the rational view, I, I'm all in. Right. Awesome. That is great. I really yeah. appreciate that. So now that you're here, I need to set another goal. Do you have any suggestions for who I should be looking for next? Uh, hmm. I think you should cross the lane more. Okay. You should okay. Uh, find a sort of a, a hip pastor who, and have a conversation with someone who, who, who is religious, but still embraces science and find out what makes them tick. And why is it that they embrace science, but other pastors don't, you know, try to reach, into mm. places because that's a big swath of what society is then you get to broaden that dialogue and broaden your audience and find out what makes people tick and there's some very high profile people in that lane but it wouldn't matter you want people who have views that are at least well thought out i don't have an exact list for you but i'll just give an example you know the head of the national institutes of health in the united states francis collins is mm -hmm. a is a phd biologist, biochemist, and he's a devout Christian. And so Christians like claiming him, see, you can do great science is, and, and still believe in Jesus. But what they, they're missing is the fact that he is not denying evolution, right? He's not denying uh, that we have common ancestry with apes. He's not denying the 5 billion year age of the earth, right? So you can look at where he sits here and he's more quote one of us than he is one of the fundamentalist religious group. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, so that's, it's interesting to just see how people land on this spectrum rather than only ever giving the point of view from the edge. And that I think will assist in, in, in all conversations with aunts and uncles at Thanksgiving. <laughs> We'll give you some insights into where everybody's coming from so that if you're trying to bring them to a new place, you uh, take them to a new place, then you've got, you, you'll have greater insights into how they think for having done so. Excellent. I'll, I'll have to do that. So thank you so yeah. much for being on The Rational View. Uh, it's been great. All right. Happy to serve, as I said. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.